Tom Woods Show, episode 1335. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, my away carry-on is everything I look for in a suitcase. It's lightweight, strong. It's got a really smooth glide through the airport. It's got a built-in combination lock a compression system for overpackers like me, and a laundry bag to boot. Get $20 off a suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Provocative book title today, and that is The Myth of Religious Violence, Secular Ideology and the Roots of Modern Conflict, written by our guest, William T. Kavanaugh, published by Oxford University Press. I got wind of this book not too long ago. It's been out for 10 years, and somehow it only just now came to my attention. There's something wrong with me, because this was a very, very interesting book indeed. Professor Kavanaugh teaches at DePaul University, where he is professor of Catholic studies and director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology. Professor Kavanaugh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Well, I have to say, this is, as you know, and I'm sure you intended it this way, a very controversial title for a book because it does seem to run counter to everything we think we know about how the world works. And as somebody who is inclined to be sympathetic with this thesis, I have to say I was very anxious to see how you were going to carry it out, what your plan of attack was. And I was hoping that it wouldn't just be a semantic argument about what constitutes religion. Uh, And it's not, although there is a, a very important discussion in here about scholars and the difficulty they've had coming up with a series of criteria that really consistently satisfy the term religion so as to give it meaning. We'll get into that in a minute. But I wonder if we could start off with having you just very, very briefly tell us what it is you're not saying in this book and then what, in fact, you are trying to argue. Okay. So the, yeah, the title is meant to be a little bit provocative um, some people look at it as if it's the myth of the spherical earth or something, as if I'm kind of a flat earther <laughs> and I'm trying to deny the obvious. So what I'm not arguing is that religion does not cause violence, right? So that Muslim extremists don't cause violence, that the crusaders don't cause violence, that, that sort of thing. That's not what I'm arguing. So because precisely because that kind of assumes that we know what we're talking about when we talk about religion, well, there's this thing called religion, and then we can decide whether it's inherently violent or inherently peaceful. And that's what I'm trying to kind of pull apart is this idea that um, there's something called religion, which is inherently uh, more prone to violence than whatever the opposite of religion is, which is the secular Right. So the idea is not that, you know, the Crusades did not happen or that um, people don't do violence on behalf of Islam or on behalf of Christianity. Of course they do. But the myth is the idea that there is something called religion of which uh, Islam and Christianity and Hinduism and Judaism, etc., are species that has an inherent tendency to produce more violence than so-called secular ideologies and institutions, things like nationalism and capitalism and politics as opposed to uh, religion and that sort of thing. So I will often start out asking audiences who's caused more violence over the last hundred years, Muslims or atheists. 
And the answer is atheists, and it's not even close. And because the estimates of deaths under officially atheist Marxist regimes range from a low of 70 million to a high of 120 million. And so um, I look then at what people do with that fact and discover that there's all kinds of sleight of hand that, that go on. So people that argue that religion has an inherent tendency to produce violence, people like uh, Christopher Hitchens, for example, will just take all that violence done on behalf of atheist regimes and declare that that counts as religion too, because it's uh, totalitarianism, Hitchens says, is inherently a religious impulse because it is, I can't remember his exact argument, because it's uh, absolutist and absolutism is inherently a kind of religious uh, impulse. And so I begin to look at these categories of religious and secular and find that things are constantly getting smuggled across the border in both directions. And then, um, I, so what I end up arguing is that there is no inherent difference between so-called secular and so-called religious ideologies in terms of violence. People do violence for all sorts of things. They can kill for gods, but they can also kill for flags and for the workers' revolution and for nations and land and oil and so on. And so uh, we need a more nuanced and empirical approach to the whole question of violence. You have a chapter where you're going through and uh, discussing the work of numerous scholars in the area of religion. And you're looking at the way they've tried to define this term in a way that includes all the particular religions that we believe belong to that class, but would at the same time exclude things that we do not think to be religion. It turns out to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do. And I had not fully realized that until reading, and I can't remember exactly which one, I bet it was more than one, as I was reading through the scholars and they're listing their criteria, each one of them sounded like American nationalism would, would satisfy exactly those things. Uh, because American nationalism involves symbolism and ritual and belief in certain principles that are empirically non-verifiable. I mean, all men are created equal is a metaphysical proposition. It's not something you, you learn in a laboratory. So I was quite surprised at this. But at the same time, I can understand why people would say, all right, maybe scholars have a tough time with it. But I'm the, I'm the man on the street. I've got street corner common sense. I know religion when I see it. And it's when people, they have a set of beliefs that can't be empirically verified, that have to do with ultimate meaning in life, and that generally involve a God. And it turns out that even that man on the street definition doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is because a lot of things that we consider to be religion uh, don't have gods as a kind of central concept. There's a lot of forms of Buddhism, for example, Taoism, that um, that don't have God or gods uh, as a central concept. And so the whole argument that religion causes violence depends on a concept of religion that can be kind of neatly circumscribed so that you've got religion over here and secularism over there, or secular ideologies over there. And it turns out that nobody has been able to come up with a way of separating these things that is in any way satisfying to all the different constituencies. And so it ends up just being subjective. It ends up um, people come up with their definitions so that they can uh, include the things they want to include under religion 
and exclude the things that they don't want to include other religion. And so the interesting question to me is looking at the political reasons and other reasons why people want to create categories in the way that they do create categories. And so a lot of people are adamant that nationalism, American nationalism, for example, is not a religion. Well, why? Why do they insist on that? And there's there are a lot of good reasons to do that, one of which is you don't want to set up American nationalism as a competitor to Christianity. And so Christians um, who think that it's perfectly justifiable to kill for the flag, they justify this and um, they save themselves from the charge of idolatry by saying, no, this is not the this is not a religious thing. This is a purely secular thing. And my religion is something over here called Christianity. Uh, let's. Um I want to move into the wars of religion. I mean, we're skipping some material. Actually, you know what? Before we do that, this actually struck me on page 89 uh, because it's a description. It follows up on what you just said. Uh, We talk about Hinduism. And what struck me about it is in particular here, and I think Buddhism, you point out that up until maybe the 19th century, the people who practiced these things wouldn't have thought, we are practicing something called religion. And it consists of the following characteristics. They wouldn't have thought that way, but that it was Westerners observing these peoples who imposed this category, particularly Enlightenment Westerners, who think of religion as this external set of observances that are separate from our daily lives. And so they they took this way of looking at the world. They encountered these other peoples, and they just forced it on there. And so here in the book you say – you list things that Hinduism lacks. It has no founder, no prophets, no creed, no dogma, no system of theology, no single moral code, no uniquely authoritative scripture, no ecclesiastical organization, and the concept of a god is not centrally important. Well, that does make it problematic. Now, on the other hand, couldn't we then just say, all right, look, it's true that it's hard to make one definition stick. So couldn't we instead just look at the three great monotheistic religions and say that they in particular have some kind of warlike characteristic to them, granting that we can't apply a religious definition that satisfies all religions so-called, couldn't we just say that these three have some kind of problem? Because that's really where we look to for – we don't really worry about Buddhist monks causing problems most of the time. So why don't we just focus on the three monotheistic religions and say they're similar enough that we could, you know, maybe we could call it religion with a star or something. We have a new term for it and say these things seem to cause violence. Sure. Well, um, those who think that Buddhists are all like Richard Gere are oftentimes surprised to see the kind of Buddhist violence that you find in Myanmar today, for example. So the idea that Buddhists are, are inherently peaceful and Christians and Jews and Muslims are not, I think, is uh, extremely questionable. The prime minister of Sri Lanka was assassinated by a Buddhist monk in the 1960s. But this idea, so, I mean, you, you could make an argument that there's something inherent in monotheism, for example, and people have made that kind of argument. Uh, so you shift the argument then to being an argument about monotheism. And you look at uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism as a special case. Um, That's a different type of argument entirely. 
And that's not the argument that I was addressing in this book. The argument in the book that I'm addressing is the argument that there's something called religion, uh, which is inherently violent. And that's the argument that has made it into our judicial system, into our political discourse, into journalistic discourse, and so on. The idea that there's the split between religious and secular And so that's the argument that I'm uh, addressing in this book. The argument about whether or not monotheism has a tendency to cause violence is a completely separate argument. And it's not the argument around which all of our political and legal uh, institutions are framed. Um, we're framed around the, the question of uh, religious and secular. So that's that's a different question. I tend to be skeptical about the idea that there's something uh, inherently violent in the quantity of gods. Um, I think that it's more about the quality of gods. And the truth is that um, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism can, certain manifestations of them can be violent, certain manifestations of them can be peaceful. And um, it doesn't do any good to kind of tar them all with a a kind of broad uh, brush that you always need to be looking under very specific circumstances. Uh, How did uh, Wahhabist uh, Islam develop in the 18th century? Under what conditions and under what conditions uh, has this militancy uh, evolved? And then you need to begin asking questions. Well, you know, it evolved. Uh, this kind of militancy evolved under conditions of Western colonialism, and so now the uh, now the blame begins to get spread around a little bit. Um, but anyway, but that's another uh, argument. But what I would argue in general is that you, the more specific and more empirically based you can get, um, the more you're likely to stumble onto an interesting argument rather than these kind of broad brush argument. So Islam is violent or religion is violent or something like that. Those kinds of arguments tend to be useless uh, at best and um, dangerous at worst. Let me uh, ask one more thing before we go on to the wars of religion. A lot of times people will say, well, it's because religion, so-called, is non-rational, of course, these people are going to be impossible to deal with because we have no common language we can speak to them in because they've already got – they've got concepts that are not subject to empirical verification. And here we are being rational and, and secular and skeptical, and we can't even talk to each other. So if we have a conflict, it has to come to blows. Right. Yeah. Um Well, I mean, there's two ways to approach that question. The first is um, the idea that Uh, so-called religions are non-rational. There are long traditions of rationality and scholastic theology and so on in Christianity and in Islam and in Judaism. So the idea that these are somehow irrational, I mean, you read through the Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae and then tell me that it's irrational. Um, I think it's it's absurd. I mean, it's it's a it's an absurd caricature. And then the other side of the argument, the idea that secular things are inherently rational and therefore peaceful, is also uh, extraordinarily questionable at best. The idea that people who kill for the flag, for example, are acting rationally just because it doesn't have anything to do with an explicitly named God 
is ridiculous. And if you look at the literature around nationalism as a religion, you know, Carlton Hayes' book, uh, Nationalism, colon, A Religion, where he lays out the case for treating it as a religion, or uh, Robert Bella's idea of civil religion, it makes it clear that patriotism, nationalism behaves exactly in the same way as uh, so-called religions do. And there's a, there is a non-rational element to it, an element of devotion to something uh, whose meaning can't be kind of explained in purely rational terms. Uh, if you look at some of the literature on consumerism and the way consumer items are treated, for example, there's a whole vast literature on consumerism as a kind of religion because uh, it treats objects, purely material objects, as having this kind of totemic value through which people construct their identity, which is very similar to you know, the way icons are treated in certain kinds of Christianity and so on. Um, and so once you begin to, to look at these caricatures, they tend to kind of melt uh, and, the, and the boundaries between religious and secular tend to fade. Folks, just a quick note about what turns out to be, apparently, the most memorable turn of phrase I have used to promote anything, and that is the expression, king of the airport. (laughs) And that is exactly what you feel like with your away suitcase and how I feel with my away carry-on. People saw me with it aboard the Contra Cruise. I gave them a nice demonstration. And there was one time when I couldn't find my away carry-on, and my family was asking me, well, what difference does it make? Just use any old suitcase. I said, what? And so I went and I said, look, it's made out of premium German polycarbonate, so it's super durable yet lightweight, and it's got this amazing compression system that helps overpackers like me, and it's got four 360-degree spinner wheels that make it coast like you're on air, and I've just on and on and on. It's got this removable laundry bag. I had all the talking points off the top of my head. I love this thing. It also makes a great gift. Nobody's expecting it as a gift, but then when they get it, they say, yes, yes, I did need this. And guess what? I got a discount for you. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase at awaytravel.com slash woods when you use promo code woods at checkout. All right, now I'd like to go on to the so-called wars of religion because these are cited as the definitive proof of the thesis. And I count 44 bullet points that you came up with to show that the reality of the wars of religion is it's not just that it's more complicated than you'd think it is. It's that it's the opposite of what it would have to be for the standard understanding of these wars to be correct. That, well, of course, Catholics versus Protestants, they both have their ridiculous ideas that nobody cares about, but that they think really matter. So they fight about them and you know that's what we fully expect. That has nothing to do with the so-called wars of religion. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, th- this came upon me. This was actually my first published article, and it came out of a, a paper that I did as a graduate student. I was looking at, we were reading all of these arguments that the wars of religion were the foundation of um, liberal social orders. Uh, people like uh, John Rawls and Richard Rorty and Judith Sklar and, and the list goes on and on of people who cite the wars of religion as being the the foundation of our social order because it showed us that you can't agree on religion and so that religion needs to be privatized. And so the the idea was that 
Catholics and Protestants started killing one another after the Reformation, and then the state had to step in and create the the secular state had to step in and create some order. And it didn't take a whole lot of research. I mean, you could open up the World Book Encyclopedia. I mean, I was a graduate student, and I started looking at histories of the so-called wars of religion and found very quickly that the narrative that's being told by political theorists and legal theorists is nonsense, that you've got Catholics killing Catholics and Protestants killing Protestants and Catholics and Protestants collaborating uh, in the so-called wars of religion. So that immediately kind of made me think, hmm, maybe there's something more going on here. Maybe this whole idea of the wars of religion is a tall tale uh, that's being told for certain kind of ideological purposes. And so if you read the history books, um, you find that the, the whole idea fades very quickly. I mean, the whole, and these are not isolated incidents. I mean, the 44 bullet points that you, that you mentioned, uh, some of them are small incidents, but some of them are huge. Like the, basically the second half of the 30 years war was a war between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons, the, two great Catholic dynasties of Europe at the time, right? Uh, cardinal Richelieu, who's a Catholic cardinal, intervened on behalf of the Lutheran Swedes. Uh, so it, it all makes you begin to question the whole, uh, the whole narrative that's being put forward. And once you begin questioning this narrative, then you begin asking why, um, why did these wars get labeled the wars of religion? And then you begin looking into the term religion and discover that the term religion, as we use it, as distinct from the secular, was really something that came after the so-called wars of religion. And so they, they couldn't have been fighting over religion because there was no such thing at the, at the time. And in a way, there, this religious, uh, secular, or religious political distinction was really a, a result of the wars rather than a motivator behind the wars. Now, there's a subtle, sometimes not so subtle, ending to this tale, which is, well, now that we've seen how these irrational people behave toward each other, that just goes to show that the modern state is the solution to our problems. And that seems a little bit self-interested to me. <laughs> you know, the people who favor the present arrangement will say, well, you know, look, if maybe you don't like us, but it's either that or these crazy people fighting with each other. What about that part of the story? Right. Yeah. I mean, so it was the theorists of the state that uh, invented this whole tale of the wars of religion. And, and that's pretty easy to, to discover as well once you begin looking at the historical argument. And so it's people like Hobbes and Locke and Spinoza uh, and other kind of founders and Rousseau, founders of modern liberal states that came up with this idea that, oh, there's something called religion which is inherently violent and the state had to be created, the secular state had to be created in order to solve the problem. Historically, of course, this is nonsense. I mean, the first secular states that you get, uh, the kind of separation of church and state, uh, for example, happened 150 years after the end of the so-called wars of religion and on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, in the United States. And so the idea that the wars of religion re resulted in the secular state or is, is just nonsense. The wars of religion resulted in the absolutist state in which basically the state dominated the church. 
And uh, only eventually did the state discover that they didn't really need the church, and then they privatized it rather than kind of institutionalized it. So the idea that the state was the solution to the wars of religion is, uh, or the secular state, is the result of the wars of religion is clearly false. But the idea that the state is the solution to the wars of religion is also false because if you begin to look at the historical record, the creation of the modern state is really one of the, if not the primary cause of the so-called wars of religion. So the wars of the 16th and 17th century were primarily wars that were being fought over the creation of a centralized state over against the rights and territories of the local nobles and uh, ecclesiastical figures and so on. So um, rather than being the solution to the problem, the creation of the state was really at the cause of the problem. And that's one of the things that I try to show in that chapter. And then finally, the book concludes with how the myth is used today, how it actually, it's, it's not just rhetorical. It's not just something people say to be disparaging toward Christianity or Islam, but it, it has real world consequences. So what are the real world consequences? Yeah, so the yeah, the final chapter is about that, and it's um, I divide things into the domestic consequences and the foreign policy consequences. Domestically, I went back and looked at all the Supreme Court cases having to do with the First Amendment over the last hundred and some years, and what you find is that uh, something called religion, up until about 1940, is invoked in Supreme Court cases as a unifying impulse in American society. And then from about 1940 onwards in Supreme Court cases, uh, religion is invoked as something which is a divisive influence and needs to be marginalized from public uh, spaces in American society. Even though, you know, the from 1940 onwards uh, is the time in which you've got the least conflict between Catholics and Protestants, for example, in American society, uh, which was never really very great. But they begin to invoke, starting with the Supreme Court case in 1940, they begin to invoke this idea of the wars of religion as um, proof that religion is dangerous and public and needs to be marginalized. And so it begins with a case over whether or not school children can be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance in class. And the argument is, yes, they can be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance in class. The Supreme Court rules this in, uh, in 1940, precisely because we need to be united around um, national identity because religious identity is so divisive. And this is a case that was brought against the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then in case after case after case, banning school prayer, outlawing the idea that you can use public school property for uh, religious education classes, things like uh, the sharing of uh, books and resources between public and private schools. All of these things get banned over the next decades on the basis of this myth that religion is inherently violent. So, you know, the, one of the famous cases, Lemon versus Kurtzman, in 1967, which bans subsidies for parochial school teachers. They're invoking this idea of the myth of religious violence as if, 
you know, there are marauding bands of Rhode Island Presbyterians who are going to kind of shoot the Catholic school social studies teacher. And at the same time, of course, we're carpet bombing Vietnam, but um, the Supreme Court justices are fretting over the possibility of religious violence in the United States at times when it's at you know, a historically low point, if, if non-existent. And so it becomes this kind of tale that's told in order to marginalize Christian practices primarily from public spaces domestically. And then in foreign policy, it gets used primarily against uh, Muslims, right? So our social order is peaceful and secular. Their social order is religious and therefore inherently volatile and, and violent. And so we need to bomb them into the higher rationality, as it were. I'm curious to know what the scholarly reception was with your book, because you really take on major people who are religious scholars, let's say, or the the history of religion. Um, I don't know if they necessarily took note of your book, but was it well-received, skeptically received? What would you say? Um, I think it's been well-received across a number of different disciplines, I had a legal philosopher who had a conference on the book at Dartmouth um, a few years after it came out, and there were people from all sorts of different disciplines uh, in there. It's been reviewed in international relations and and other kinds of uh, journals. So I think it's been pretty well received. And what I'm most pleased about is that I don't think anybody has been able to refute the argument and nobody has nobody who understood the argument has actually attempted to refute it. The only attempt at refuting it, I think, is in a theologian's book, uh, Ephraim Radner's book, uh, Brutal Unity. And I actually had a a sort of debate uh, with him about this at the American Academy of Religion meeting in Baltimore a few years ago, in which he, he basically backed down and admitted that he hadn't really understood the argument. He understood the argument as being that religion doesn't cause violence. Uh, which is what I pretty explicitly say is not the argument uh, of the book. And so he's um, uh, his kind of mischaracterization of the argument, I think he's kind of backed down from that. You can read the whole exchange in my latest book called Field Hospital, where I have a chapter uh, responding to different responses to the book. But for the most part, people haven't even attempted to kind of refute the argument as such. There's a lot of people that ignore it because it's in their interests to ignore it. But I don't think anybody's uh, been able to refute it or, or has even tried. Well, the book is published by Oxford University Press, so it's it's in scholarly circles. If you were to publish this book with a trade publisher, let's say, and pitch it to the general public, you would have so many Amazon reviews of people who had read nothing but the title. <laughs> And they would be lecturing you about all the examples of religious violence. And it would just – I know this because that's mostly where my books are published. And they they look at the front cover and they are indignant and outraged. They've not even cracked the thing open. So at least at least you're shielded a, a bit from that. Do you have a website you'd like me to tell folks about? Um, I don't. I, I'm kind of a Luddite. I, I still carry a flip phone and I don't have any media presence. I'm not even on Facebook. So no, uh, you can read the book and, and make your own judgment. Uh, Karen Armstrong actually wrote a book on religion and violence um, in which she incorporates some of my argument and it's directed at a more popular audience. 
and I think she does a pretty good job there. So uh, if people are interested in a more um, a more popular version of it, they uh, they might look at that. But I think I write pretty clearly, and um, I think my book is accessible to oh, absolutely. anybody who's interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's not. I mean, you, you, obviously, a, a lot of books that, that come out of these presses are weighed down by. Uh, jargon that's particular to some disciplines, but that's not the case here. This was extremely readable and very provocative throughout and really, really thought-provoking even for me. So the book is The Myth of Religious Violence, Secular Ideology, and the Roots of Modern Conflict. I will link to the book at tomwoods.com slash 1335. Professor Kavanaugh, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. Well, even though Professor Kavanaugh does not have a website, he does have a faculty page, and I will link to that because you can find out more about him and links to his works and things of that sort. Also at tomwoods.com slash 1335. One other thing, those of you who have taken me up on my offer where I'll help you get some publicity for your website and get you some tutorials to get you up and running to learn how to use WordPress. WordPress is a platform that bloggers use to do their blogging work. Well, I just want you to know that I have updated the tutorials because there's a new version of WordPress where it's not entirely different, but it's very different from what's being described in the earlier tutorials. So those are still there for historical reference, and some people are still using the earlier WordPress, which will be allowed for a while, apparently. But most people have upgraded to the new WordPress, and those tutorials were not really going to help you anymore. So I've got you all fresh tutorials up there now, And if you would like to do that, remember, just go to tomwoods.com slash publicity. That's where you find out the information about how you can get special help from me if you're starting a website. And that includes the tutorials. I think I've got 40 different tutorials up there now. And you don't need to watch all of them, by the way. It's not like you have to sit there, go through every single one. For the basics, you want to go through the basic stuff. But then some of it is kind of like ninja tricks and things that'll give you a little bit of an edge or It'll help you to really use all the features. I'm the sort of guy, I get software or I get a platform and I use 3% of the features and I never learn how it all works. So this is your chance to really learn what all the features are. So uh, that's for my folks who went through my link to get their hosting. Uh, The details for how you get bonuses like this and how you get publicity from me. Uh, Before you start your site, uh, get those details at tomwoods.com slash publicity. All right, let's see what's going on here this week. I can't, did I tell you that Walter Block was coming back on? I got Josh Blackman coming on. Then I got Walter Block. And as, yeah, I did, I think I did mention that. Walter and I are going to talk about, you know, some of those challenging topics, even more challenging than, than who will build the roads. Really, really challenging libertarian topics. So we're going to have a lot of fun doing that. So make sure you subscribe, tomwoods.com slash iTunes. Spread the word to your friends by posting the links on social media, letting them know that there is a Monday through Friday Libertarian podcast that'll give them a nice, interesting briefing on a daily basis. Thanks so much. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.